Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom. To learn more, visit us at perennialleader.com. Hello and welcome. I am Joshua. Thank you so much for listening. On today's episode, my guest is Dr. Kelly Flanagan, the author of True Companions, a book for everyone about the relationships that see us through. Dr. Flanagan is a clinical psychologist, author, and speaker. In this episode, we discuss loneliness, deepening relationships, the four loves, and much more. I really enjoyed this conversation and hope you do as well. Please welcome the wise and gracious Dr. Kelly Flanagan. Hi, Kelly. Thank you for being on the show. Joshua, thanks for having me. I'm new to your work. As I stated before we kind of got started, I heard you on the podcast, Good, True, and Beautiful, and was really intrigued and uh, enjoyed you sharing your wisdom on there. And I'm really excited to discuss this new book, True Companions. Mm, Thanks. I'm enjoying discussing it right now. So, we're a good fit. (laughs) Great. To begin, I was wondering if we could go a bit back in time and kind of discuss your journey a bit of initially kind of leading you down the path of being a clinical psychologist and your spiritual path. Anything that you might like to share there? Wow. Yeah. Well, I think anyone who reads True Companions or my previous book, Lovable, will discover that while I'm a clinical psychologist and those experiences and that training certainly serves as a foundation for my writing, I'm trying to show up in my writing as a human being first and then maybe as a father and a friend and a husband and only then as a sort of a clinical psychologist. So when we published Lovable, my first book, actually there was a lengthy discussion about whether or not it should say Dr. Kelly Flanagan on the cover rather than just Kelly Flanagan. And the ultimate decision was if we put Dr. Kelly Flanagan on the cover and someone picks it up because they think you're going to do the doctor thing, they're going to be really (laughs) disappointed with this book because it contained letters to my children and reflections on my own childhood and, and all of that. So, And then True Companions, similarly, it's a book for sort of companions of every kind. It's a book for married couples and friends and siblings. But it's as much about being human as it is me being an expert and teaching you how to do everything right. So yeah, so I think the clinical psychology background is essential to my own personal story, my own healing and the work I do with clients. And then I want to sort of get off of that pedestal we put experts on and get down into the muck and talk about it as a human being with everybody. Thank you for that. When you think of your previous book, Lovable, which I just started exploring as well, do you see a connection between the two? Oh boy, I sure do. I mean, so lovable, first of all, I mean, if I could summarize it, it would be how we come into the world with a true self, experience something that we call shame, which is the message that we're not good enough as our true self, the way we are, we're not good enough to receive love and belonging. And then how we go about building a false self, which is sort of designed to earn us the love and belonging we've come to believe that we don't deserve. And then we sort of go out there in the world wielding our false self. And Lovable is about how to reclaim our true self and overcome that shame. And so I had this really interesting experience, you know, maybe a year or so after having written and published Lovable of really feeling like a lot of the shame I'd carried most of my life had diminished greatly. And yet still discovering that I was feeling really lonely 
at times in my life and having this question, which was, wait a second, I'm not feeling ashamed anymore. Why do I feel so lonely? Aren't those the same thing? And then I actually went to some of my favorite writers and philosophers and spiritual gurus to find out like, how do they talk about shame and loneliness? And turns out they also sort of, oftentimes when they write about them, they sort of use those two terms synonymously. And yet I was going, wait a second, I feel much less shame, but I feel just as much loneliness. These are different things. What's that about? And also being more and more aware that my relationships were increasingly satisfying. And so I couldn't sort of explain my loneliness through the lens of, well, my relationships are disappointing. My people are somehow not showing up to care for me the way that I would hope. And so started to dive in to this idea that we confuse our loneliness with other human experiences. But if we can disentangle it from those other experiences, then we actually begin to get an experience of our true uniqueness of the thing that sets us apart from everybody, the things that no one else can understand about us because we're totally unique, the parts of us that no one else can get to. And that once we get to the core of that, we're actually getting to the center of who we are as people. And so our loneliness actually isn't a bad thing. It's just the shadow side of our uniqueness. And if we're afraid to go there, then we're afraid to get into the things that make us most worthy and most ourselves. So that actually ended up becoming the foundation of a book about relationships, right? Like, what's it look like to assume that as human beings, we will always be a little lonely within the experience of being ourselves? And then how does that change our relationships if that's our foundational reality? How do we quit doing damage to our relationships, demanding that they take away all of our loneliness? How do we quit causing conflict in the effort to get someone to take that away? And instead, just sort of live in the light of it and love each other in the midst of it. I love that. In part one, you title it Befriending Our Loneliness. And yeah. I'm really excited to explore this at a deeper level, and we'll see how much time that yeah. takes. But I'm <laughs> happy to spend quite a bit of time there. And I, I love how you write what it's not. You say loneliness is misunderstood. Abandonment is not loneliness. Neither is shame, nor is isolation. If possible, how would you define loneliness in the context of kind of some of those chapters there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, so some of the backstory of True Companions is that once I began to become aware of, of some of these things about loneliness and started to write about them, I got really excited about what loneliness is. And I wrote the first part of the book and I took it to my online tribe and I said, hey, loneliness is great. And they were like, you're crazy. They don't tend to like disagree with me a lot. And they just weren't on board. They're like, no, it's loneliness is not great. It's this. And I started to listen to them and actually listened for maybe five or six hours. And I realized what I was hearing was that they were describing three other experiences that they were using synonymously with loneliness, sort of like I'd been using shame. And so we spent some time together teasing those out. And those three experiences were, as you mentioned, abandonment, which is the experience of being left by somebody that we're attached to. And those abandonments happen, I think a lot of times we think of that as these really relatively rare moments where a parent walks out on us as a kid or something like that. But I mean, abandonments are happening all the time, right? You see kids crying as they walk into kindergarten, they're feeling abandoned. Like it's part of life. These things happen. A loved one passes away through no fault of their own, obviously, and we feel abandoned. So abandonment sometimes gets confused with loneliness. Shame, as I mentioned, the belief that we're not good enough gets confused with loneliness, oftentimes in the form of I'm lonely because, right? I'm lonely because I'm not attractive enough. I'm lonely because I'm not accomplished enough. I'm lonely because shame just fills in all of these sort of reasons that loneliness is a sign of our failure, really. And then the third one was isolation, 
which is being alone, is not really having the people in our life to witness our lives. And that's painful, and it's hard, and it's not how we're designed to live as human beings. We're designed to live in community and connection and to have witnesses to our life. So that's different than loneliness, though. That's isolation. And so once in our community, we were able to tease loneliness out from those other three experiences, I got to see some really liberating things starting to happen with folks going, like, oh, this is just my loneliness. I don't need to be mad at anybody about it. I don't need to feel bad about it. I don't need to try to fix it. I need to learn how to just be with it and learn how to be with myself in it. And as I do that, I begin to get to know myself better, accept myself more, love myself more. And all of a sudden, I'm really appreciating the ways in which I'm me. So it was cool to watch that play out with my tribe. And and so I took the original, I think it's currently the fifth chapter in the book, was originally the first chapter when I originally wrote it, moved it to the fifth chapter, and then spent some time talking about these other painful human experiences that aren't quite the same as loneliness. Coming to that realization, how do you think that connects with that knowing ourself or self-awareness, kind of that two sides of our own self-awareness, but the realization that others may not know aspects of ourselves as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the fear of not being understood and of not being known is so intense, I think. And the assumption, of course, is that, well, we should be understood. If we're doing things right, we will be. That I think what we risk is, I think that some of our most beautiful parts aren't understandable. No one else will get it. And so if we are afraid of those parts, if we are afraid of the experience of those parts not being understood, we literally will ignore them within us. We'll split them off. We'll compartmentalize them. We'll push them out of our consciousness. And in doing that, we're pushing away some of the most beautiful things about us because at some level we know no one's going to get it, or at least no one has so far. I tell a story in True Companions about when I'm sort of in the creative process of writing a book, like it's anxiety provoking, you know, it's a messy process. Like you start out planning to write one thing and it turns out being something different. And so it helps me during those times to watch YouTube videos of other creatives struggling through their own creative process. So I was really struggling one day and I found a video of Jack Antonoff of Bleacher's fame creating one of his songs. Took him like three or four months, a terribly messy process. And I sent the video to my wife, who's one of the best companions a guy could have, and said, hey, this is amazing. You got to watch this. And I didn't hear anything back from her that day. And she gets home that night and I'm waiting at the door. I'm like, did you see that Jack Antonoff video? What did you think? And she's like, yeah, I watched like a minute of it, but meh, like I don't really get what's such a, you know, and here's my wife. She understands me better than anybody and she will never understand that creative experience for me and how scary it is and how comforting it is to watch a video like that. And in the past, when I didn't know that was just part of my loneliness, part of the parts she's never going to get. I would have blamed her for not caring enough to watch it longer, not trying hard enough to know me better. But there was this graceful moment where I was just able to go, yeah, she doesn't get that. And that's okay. And there's parts of her I'm not ever going to understand. This woman goes running every morning with people. Like, this is crazy in my mind. I'll never understand that. She'll never be able to tell me about the joys of that in a way that I totally get. So we're both a little lonely in the relationship. But now we get to share the fact that we're lonely and there's things that we can't understand about each other and that's okay. I've been really curious about, it seems like this inner wisdom that we kind of realize this, but also it it could seem a bit counterintuitive that it leads to deeper connection. How do you kind of see it showing up in our relationships by coming to this? That's a great question. 
it does seem counterintuitive, you know. I mean, I don't know anybody who doesn't get married thinking this marriage is going to make me less lonely, right? And I think it does obviously make us less isolated. For instance, you have someone around all the time. And so one of the visuals that I use for couples, like when I'm leading retreats and such, when I'm talking about this is that I sort of, if you can picture me now, I'm holding my loneliness in my cupped hands right in front of my chest. And a lot of what we're doing in relationships that we think is what it's for is we're holding that relationship out straight with our arms straight out to our companion saying, okay, here, take this from me. I don't like this feeling. I don't want it anymore. You take it. You do something about this for me. And so the problem is like when you have two people doing that to each other, no one's got hands free (laughs) to take it to begin with, nor could they even if they did. So I like to show couples this image of actually, instead of holding that loneliness out in our cupped hands, actually lifting it up to each other and saying, here, I want to show you what it's like to be me and to not be understood. I want to show you what it's like to be me and to feel lonely. And I want to tell you about the parts of me that no one understands. And then to be able to do that for each other and to have someone listen to that. Now, all of a sudden, I can't understand what it's like to be my wife who likes to run every morning, and she can't understand what it's like to be me writing a book like this. But we can understand what it's like to be misunderstood. And all of a sudden, we're sharing that experience. And now, all of a sudden, you feel a little bit less alone because there was the intimacy and the connection that happened in sharing that. So I actually have come to see and experience loneliness not as the failure of connection and closeness or a barrier to it, but actually as a pathway to deeper connection and closeness. That's really helpful. When you think about our calling or our our purpose in life, how do you see this pathway to loneliness and understanding it and befriending it coming into play? Yeah. That's a great question, too. By the way, I don't find myself saying that's a great question over and over again in an interview very often. So I hope you receive that affirmation. Thank you. Feel free to keep that in the the final cut. Um, My book, Lovable, actually specifically was meant to address this question of purpose. In fact, it started out as a book about purpose. And it was originally titled The Day You Find Out Why, as in Mark Twain's quote, the two most important days in your life or the day you're born and the day you find out why. But I kept trying to write a book about purpose that wouldn't make people feel ashamed that they weren't living a better purpose. And I realized that I couldn't do it until I sort of backward engineered the book to also address issues of shame and worthiness. Because so often it's our false self that is out there trying to find a purpose to prove that I'm good enough, to prove that I'm worthy, to make my mom and dad proud of me, you know, all of those things. And so, so much of the task of life of finding a purpose is actually about rediscovering your true self first, and now from your true self, trying to explore what you're here to do. And to me, when that happens, the noun shifts from purpose to passion. That the way I think of it is the false self is in search of a purpose and fueled by ambition, The true self is in search of presence and fueled by passion. This idea of being here in the world to show up in a certain way in anything that I'm doing. So that's what lovable ended up being about. So I suppose the intersection here with purpose and passion is part of the journey to rediscovering our true self and connecting with our sense of worthiness. The last legs of that journey are pretty lonely. Right? As we get closer to our center, to our core, to our true self, we're getting closer and closer to a space within us that no one else can reach with us and no one else can understand. So if you're not willing to go that last lonely leg, then you're leaving something on the table with regard to your clarity of passion and purpose. And I don't think of these things as all or nothing things. Like I 
I feel like I'm still here at 44 years old, still getting greater clarity about what are my passions? What do I want to do? How am I here to be in the world? How does that translate into my purpose? But if you're not willing to go that last leg, you might just miss out on some of the clarity about that. I was really reminded of a classic book from C.S. Lewis, The Four Loves, reading this. And I was wondering if you could unpack these four loves for the audience. Sure. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because right near the end of the process of finalizing the manuscript, there was debate about whether or not we should use the masculine or feminine form of the Greek word, so either phileo or philia. And the decision was based upon, well, C.S. Lewis used philia, and if it was good enough for him, it's good enough for us. So, <laughs> And he used it in this book, The Four Loves. You know, He talks about how in the English language, we have one word for love, typically, but in the Greek, there's four words. And those words are agape, which it means like an unconditional sort of love. And this is a word that the Greeks only use to refer to the gods, essentially. The Greeks never assumed that human beings would be able to show each other an agape kind of love. It was, it's this sort of eternal, undying love. You can forget about the gods, you can slander the gods, and they will continue to love you with this agape, unending love. And then they talked about storge, which was the kind of love that happens amongst family members, it's the kind of love that sort of is derived from a group identity. It's this sort of dispassionate sort of fact, like, oh, I'm a Democrat and you're a Democrat, so we love each other. Or I'm a Republican and you're a Republican, so we love each other. Or we're Flanagans, so we love each other, right? We're a mess, we're a wreck, but we'll always be family. So that's storge love. And then eros is the more lustful, passionate form of love. It's the heady-giddy stuff at the beginning of a relationship. It's often expressed physically. We sometimes think of it as somehow like a lesser love because it does tend to dissipate over the course of a relationship. But I tend to think of it as a love that sort of recedes into the background of a relationship. Its energy can only come out sort of in poignant moments, but it is there in healthy relationships, in healthy romantic relationships. And then the fourth love, the one that True Companions is really about, is this love that's called philia, which if you translate it into the English would be companionship or friendship. You know, Philadelphia, right? The city of brotherly love. This is the love that is uniquely about being human. It's about living in a give-and-take relationship with a sense of mutuality of responsibility for each other. And I think in companionship, when it's lived out, there's a mutual sense of we are here to become not happier as people, but to become more human as people. And we're each going to take responsibility for our own growth as human beings and do that on behalf of the relationship. And so philia is this love that I actually, when I set out to write True Companions, I thought I was going to write a book about agape love in relationships and very quickly discovered that actually we can tend to sort of use agape love in relationships to actually get around some of the hard work of being in companionship and some of the more rewarding work even. And so I wanted to write a book about philia instead. You did a great job with that. I would love to follow this path a bit here around love. How do you see it? Do you see it? love as a skill that we cultivate and develop in terms of our ability to love? That's a great question too, because a lot of times when you see people who are trying to love each other unconditionally, there's a sense in that of there's a bit of an all or nothingness to it, right? Either I loved you unconditionally today and succeeded in doing it, or I failed. And if I did it, yay. And if I failed, shame on me, you know, which is ironic because 
the more shame you feel about failing, the less capacity you have for love. So it ends up being this really losing proposition. Whereas absolutely, I think inherent in the idea of philia love is that I'm not really very good at loving or I'm on a steep learning curve at best, you know? So there's this sort of humility between companions of we're both really hard people to love because we're humans and humans are hard to love. And we're both working to get better at doing that. So there's this sense that no matter how well our quote relationship is going, we're growing in our capacity to love each other until the very last day. And so it is very much about growth and transformation. When you think about unconditional love in companionship, it kind of reminded me of uh, Anthony DeMello book, which I'm very fond of, The Way to Love. And it's definitely made me rethink and think in a new way about love. I was wondering if you could speak a bit in terms of maybe the practicality or how that shows up in everyday life between those two. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it can be really easy I've noticed in conversations when people hear me singing the praises of philia love in contrast to agape, there's a tendency to want to do an either or. Oh, wait, so which one's the right one? Which one's the better one? And so I like to think of it this way, first of all, that I I think agape love is, I mean, if I can get a little metaphysical, like the sort of the foundation of the universe, if you will, the foundation of all reality and being. But that's how I like to think of it. If you imagined a relationship was like building a house, that agape love, unconditional love, is the foundation. It's the facthood upon which any other love and relationship is built. But on a day-to-day basis, the relationship is the framing out of the house. It's the putting on the siding and the roofing and decorating and dealing with the messes of living within that home. It's everything that's built on the foundation of agape. And so I think they go together in a very intimate way. In terms of the practicality of day-to-day living and loving, I think it makes more sense to focus on philia and what that's asking of us. So in other words, practically speaking, the question when I wake up every morning isn't how can I love you unconditionally today, but how can I be a better companion to you today than I was yesterday? And to me, there's so much more spaciousness in that question to grow as human beings together versus the pressure of how do I get it right today? <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I would go on to say just a couple other things. When I see people focusing exclusively on agape love in relationships, I see that it almost inevitably leads to several different ways of actually getting around the hard parts, detours around love, if you will. And so one of them, for instance, is A lot of times when someone says, I want us to love each other unconditionally, they're saying, I want you to love me as if I'm perfect and don't challenge me to grow in any way, you know? And I mean, we're imperfect people, so it's a gift to be challenged to grow. But agape is sort of used as a way to avoid that. I think a lot of people use unconditional love, so to speak, to avoid conflict and to say, well, I really know there's a hard conversation that needs to be had here, but I'm going to love them unconditionally and just I'm going to focus on that, you know, and it's like, no, go have the hard conversation, practice some philia. And then, of course, there's the classic, well, I would never lower myself to speaking to that person in real life, but I love them unconditionally from afar. And I just don't know that that matters, frankly, to love someone unconditionally from afar. And so I'm excited about the idea of people getting excited about philia and challenging some of the ways they're sort of resting in the safety and comfort of agape and nudging them out of that comfort zone into sort of real-world relationships. That's great. I love that. I'm a fan of a study guide, and I have to say, you wrote a great study guide for this book. I'd encourage anybody to get the study guide as well. And I was wondering if we could spend a bit of time discussing the acronym that you use of, of IOU throughout. Yep, absolutely. 
It's interesting. I'd never articulated it as the IOU acronym really until I started to think about the study guide. And I sort of realized that that is how I think of almost everything, you know, that we have to go on inward journeys into ourselves to get to know ourselves better so we can go on outward journeys towards each other so that all together we can go on an upward journey towards a higher sense of presence in this world. And so, (laughs) yeah, so IOU, inward, outward, upward, right? And it's just to me, that's the progression through which we progress most efficiently in our growth and transformation and betterment. So yeah, so the study guide is sort of organized around that. Each so There's five sessions in the study guide and the True Companion study guide, and each session first involves an inward journey, where you're really spending some time with the text and contemplating exactly what it means for you. And then the idea, although I encourage folks to use the study guide loosely in whatever way works for them, the idea is that you might come to a group setting then, where you're studying this book together, and you'd actually begin your group part of the study not by having a big group discussion, but by actually pairing up into pairs and actually going outward toward one other person and interviewing each other with a different set of questions about the book. And again, interviewing each other about what does this look like when things get better in relationships? What does it look like when you're at your best? Those sorts of things. And then this sort of more upward together collective, let's all come back together as a group now and discuss even a third set of questions. So there's like 15 sets of questions in these five sessions, essentially. So, And these are three sets of questions that you can do on your own, or there are sets of questions you can do sort of on your own and with a group. How do you think of true companions when you think of kind of the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, do you think of this true companions kind of applying to the entire world? I really do. The reality is we practice loving at home. So, I mean, 90% of people reading this book, they're going to experience immediate applications to the people in their home, whether it's their kids or their partner, spouses. They're going to think about people in their immediate proximity, friends, extended family and those sorts of things. But I can testify myself that when you're starting to make a habit of asking yourself, how can I be a better companion in this moment? (laughs) It's hard to contain it to home, right? And to your immediate circles. Like I find myself now, I own a group practice in Naperville, Illinois, a therapy practice. And I find myself now that's one of the most important questions I'm asking at the beginning of a staff meeting that I'm leading is how do I show up as a good companion within the staff meeting? What does it look like to create the capacity for companionship in this practice? What does it look like when you're out of the supermarket to, if called upon, be a companion to anyone who comes across your path? Now, also one of the characteristics of philia or of companionship is that you recognize you can only possibly be responsible for yourself. (laughs) And this is so much of what happens in relationships. I want you to grow up in this way. Oh, those are your defenses and protections. You need to work on those. It's fruitless. It doesn't work. And so there's a clear focus on my own personal responsibility and growth for my life and my capacity to show up as companions. So whether it's at home or out in the broader world, we also recognize that I want to show up as a companion to you, but whether or not you do that for me is up to you. I can't make you do that. And so it also has sort of limitations placed on it that are sort of reflective of our limited power and control as human beings. In this learning how to be lonely, I read in the companion, got around the steps to wise vulnerability. Could you kind of speak a bit to the steps? And I'm happy to to read them out if you like. You probably know them better than me if you've got them right there. (laughs) Did I say steps to wise vulnerability? Then you better read them. I'm listening. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. The first one you write, become familiar 
with the mature of our kind of protective self, two, observing our protective self kind of at work, and then three, become more skilled of observing, and then finally the opportunity to kind of make a wise choice, that wise vulnerability. Yeah, thanks for the reminder. (laughs) That's great. The middle portion of True Companions is, in some ways, it's another swipe sort of more in the context of relationships at this reality that we are all living with two selves, that true self and that false self, right? Or, you know, what I call in true companions, the connective self, which is the urge and the nature of the true self, and the protective self, which is the specific function of the false self is to protect us from more shame, more hurt, being left alone and those sorts of things. I think it's essential and I say this, so whenever I lead a marriage retreat, yeah, when you got married, two became one. But unfortunately, before that, each one of you became two. <laughs> so it's a little more complicated than that. You each bring into the relationship a true and a false self. And so what I'm referring to there is, number one, what are the protections that your false self draws upon to keep you safe and protected in relationships, even the closest ones, even the ones where you want to connect, but there's always another self sort of operating, protecting you. Number one, becoming familiar with what your protections are. Then dedicating really your awareness to observing those protections. Like if there's a practice in relationship that will lead to growth in the relationship, it's two people practicing the observation of their own protections. Because only in that moment of observation do you create a moment of choice about whether or not you're going to protect in this moment or take the risk to connect. I'll give you an example. Like, this is maybe a year or so ago, I come out of the bedroom one morning and I'm not very pleasant to be around. Let's put it that way. Like I'm sort of snippy and I'm superior to everybody. And it's my protection that I call competition. It's me being better than and above everybody. And I'm sort of aware of it at the edge of my periphery. I'm sort of aware, like you're not showing up as a very pleasant fellow this morning. But anyways, I'm going around and finally my wife looks at me. She says, why are you being a jerk this morning? And there are plenty of times in the past and since then, to be honest with you, where my response would be, I'm not being a jerk. Why are you in such a bad mood? Or, you know, well, I'm a jerk because everyone left the house a mess or whatever I decided to protect myself with. But in that moment, I stepped back and I observed my behavior really for the whole morning and let in that awareness that, yeah, you're not being very cool this morning. And my answer to her was, I don't know. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I have no idea why I woke up in this mood. In hindsight, I think it was because I had a big speaking gig that day and I was nervous. So I was trying to protect my vulnerability about that. But at the moment it was, I don't know, but I'm observing my protection. I don't even need to understand why I'm doing it. I just need to observe it and choose not to enact it anymore in this moment and be vulnerable and just say, I'm sorry, I don't know. And so to me, that's the moment of vulnerability where you observe the protection, choose not to embody it anymore and connect instead. And this concept of wise vulnerability has to do with the fact that there may be some situations where you wisely choose not to get vulnerable. You might go, oh, wow, I am protective right now, but I'm protective because this is not a safe space. And I've developed clarity that this isn't a safe space. Now I have decisions to do what to do with my protections, but I'm probably not going to get vulnerable in this moment. So I like to be clear with folks that vulnerability always feels risky, but wise vulnerability is taking a calculated risk that you're a person worth taking a risk with. You're a person who I'm going to gamble will be a safe space for my vulnerability. No, I love that. And such an important distinction that is probably not always communicated around vulnerability. (laughs) 
I think there's a, unfortunately yeah, a lot of just be vulnerable all the time and everything will work out. It just unfortunately that's not true. And I think getting practiced and clear in terms of when we want to really jump into vulnerability and not and feeling like we have some say in that is really important. As we start to wrap up the conversation, I was really curious as you reflect on these last couple books that you've written, what are you still really curious about? Anything come to mind in terms of looking forward? Yeah, that's a great question. So I will say this, but take it with a grain of salt. I hesitate to say this because so often I've said, ooh, my next book is going to be about this, you know, and then it's six ideas later that I actually land on my what I want to write about. But I'll tell you that right now, the thing that is guiding so much of my own personal journey and influencing so much of the way I see the world is this idea of power and how powerful we are as individuals, but how our power has an edge to it, a limit to it, and how powerless we are also as individuals in a lot of situations, like we talked about earlier, powerless to like convince anybody else to grow in any particular way. And one of the ideas that's interesting to me as I think about my life right now is where am I giving time and energy to things I'm powerless over? And therefore, draining my energy from the things that I do have power over. Like, how do I take that energy back from these things I'm powerless in, situations and so on? And how do I give it back to the things I can actually influence and impact? And so, sort of like a transfer of power back to the places where we do have influence. And it's interesting as I start to think about that, the reason that idea is getting traction with me in terms of a deeper exploration is that it's an idea that's important to me. And in almost every conversation, I'm hearing it come up. Like, I have enormous influence over my teenage kids, but I recognize that I don't have complete influence. They can go out and do anything and make any mistake, and I'm powerless to stop that, right? So what do I do? Do I give my energy to worrying about that or... I buy them even better devices so they'll want to stay at home rather than go out with their friends or, you know, so on and so on versus taking that energy back and figuring out how to put it into the areas of the relationship where I do have influence and then allowing the rest of it to sort of accept the humility of your powerlessness in those other areas. So to me, it's like, it's an exciting space to think about where's that edge? How do we become wise about what our edge is and redirect our energies appropriately? I love that. And I appreciate you sharing. I I hope you follow that curiosity. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) For somebody listening, looking for a small, tiny step towards being a true companion, what comes to mind? A small, tiny step towards being a true companion. This is what I'd recommend. I mentioned that I think the key task of companionship is that ability to sort of observe our protections in action to create a moment of choice about what we do with them. And so one of the things that I often recommend to folks is that, you know, the last thing we do in the evening now and the first thing that we do in the morning is we flick through our phone. We even have our routines. We go through certain apps. Flick through your protections. Flick through your false self instead. At the end of the day, ask yourself, where did I protect today? Don't beat yourself up for it. You're human. Everybody does it. Shaming yourself will just make you feel more need for protection. But where did I protect today And where might I have engaged in a little bit more wise vulnerability? Where would I have liked to have connected a little differently, opened up my heart and so on? And then in the morning, this is a huge practice, is just check in. Like, how am I feeling protected waking up today? That morning I woke up acting sort of like a jerk because I was going to go speaking. What are the protections that I'm ready to use already today? And what do I want to do instead? 
to connect and to show up differently. And if we can just bring that intentionality to the end and the beginning of our day, it can just, it changes so much about everything else. That's powerful. You obviously did lots of research and read lots of good books uh, writing this. Is there any kind of must-reads that hmm. really kind of influence that you'd maybe like to share? Wow, that's, let's see. We didn't really get into it, but the last part of True Companions is about how to develop an awareness of our human fragility in a way that instead of it scaring us, it actually focuses us on our higher values, right? And the things that matter most to us. And what we discover is that when we start to focus on our higher values, our companions are always in that category. And I read some beautiful books, When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi, Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. I mentioned the research from that book and True Companions. Those are the first two that come to mind, and they're from the third section. You know, so many of the books I read in order to understand loneliness better just led me back to the fact that no one was thinking about it the way I was. But yeah, those two books that are related to the end of the book are, were really powerful for me. Great. We really scratched the surface. I highly encourage everybody to pick up the book, pick up the study guide. It's absolutely great. In our short time together, is there anything that we really didn't discuss that we should have that you'd like to put out mm. there before we wrap up? No, to be honest with you, I'm looking at our clock here and going, wow, how did we <laughs> yeah. talk about all that in 45 minutes? Like, yeah, I think this by. was a fabulous conversation. I'm so grateful for it. Great. Likewise. Thank you so much, Kelly. Where can people go to learn more about your work? Yeah. So my website is drkellyflanagan.com. It's drkellyflanagan.com. And when they go there, they'll see a place right at the top of the website there that says, get your guide. And the guide is a 52-week uh, guide through the three essentials of a truly satisfying life, worthiness, belonging, and purpose. They're a weekly reading and a weekly practice for that week. So going to my website and getting that guide and getting on my email list for further updates is one way to get involved and get connected. TrueCompanionsBook.com is a place to go to find out more about the book, but it's available wherever books are sold. So folks can also go there to get the book and the study guide. Great. And we'll link all of that in the show notes. Dr. Kelly Flanagan, thank you so much for your time. I'm really grateful. This is a pleasure, Joshua. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you gained a bit of wisdom. You can check out the show notes at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support, please subscribe, share with a friend, and leave a review. It's a small thing that has a big impact. Until next time, be wise and be well.